Welcome to the official It's All Dead podcast. The music is dead. Long live the music. Welcome to the official It's All Dead podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am Kyle Hawk, editor-in-chief at itsalldead.com, a website all about music. And joining me is our senior editor, Kyle Schultz from Chicago. Kyle, how are you doing Hello. tonight? Good. Yourself, buddy? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, doing a podcast. It's, it's been a little while, it feels like. Um, but this is good. Um, it has, yeah. We... Uh, we do a podcast regularly for the site, but we also write a lot of things about music, album reviews, um, event coverage, news, the whole nine yards. So if you want to check any of it out, go to itsalldead.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, you can subscribe uh, by pulling up iTunes on your home computer, the podcast app on your smartphone, just searching for It's All Dead. Uh, you can check out all of our past episodes and subscribe to stay up to date on every show that we put out. But uh Right now, we are doing my favorite podcast of the year, and this is something that we started back when we started the site. It may have even been the, the first podcast we ever did. We, If you go to our site regularly, you'll see that we do these uh, reflecting on features where we write about an album that came out 10 years ago, and we do a lot of these. Um, and we do a podcast once a year where we talk about the best music that came out 10 years ago, um, and it always ends up being one of my favorites, and it always seems to be one of the ones that we get a lot of feedback on. Um, and so the time has come. We're about midway through 2016, and we are going to look back today at some of our favorite albums that came out in 2006. And it's funny, Kyle, because I remember last year when we did 2005, I was talking about how 2005 may have been my favorite music or my favorite year for music all time. But now as I've been writing some of these features on 2006 and going back preparing for this podcast, and I'm wondering if maybe uh, 2006 wasn't, the best year for music. I don't know. What What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, 2006 wasn't the best year. For, for me, what happens is usually it goes on and off with either there's a year where I find a lot of new music, which 2005 was, mm -hmm. or 2006 is the year where all my favorite bands put out a new album. Ah, yeah. And it goes back and forth with that, um, even to this day, really. And 2006 was no exception. Like, every band I've ever loved put something out that year. Uh, for the most part, and it was is very hit or miss. It was a very uh, upturn. Upturn is a terrible word for it, but uh, you know, there's a change in pop punk at the time, and bands that were a lot heavier were trying in softer tones. Bands that had been softer were trying different things, um, and it was just a very weird period where you got some very interesting albums, which some of them hit, some of them missed, um, but there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of bands that are still around today 10 years later really grew from that and they're putting out the best work of their entire career yeah that's a really good way of putting it I, I think maybe that's what it is there's just a lot to talk about with 2006 i mean there there were a lot of big records uh, and like you said some of them hit some of them missed but there's definitely a conversation to be had uh and i i do think pound for pound 2005 is probably where it's at for me but 2006 two of probably my three favorite albums of all time came out and i think that's uh, kind of what makes it seem so huge for me, but we'll we'll see how things uh, stack up during the conversation. Um, basically, what we're going to do here is uh, Kyle and I have each picked out three albums that we're going to focus on. Uh, three of a three albums for each of us that we're going to kind of give a uh, little background on and share why uh, why we're mentioning them here and uh, still listening to them ten years later. We've got a couple honorable mentions as well. Um, but Kyle, why don't you start us off uh, with your, your first album that you want to bring up from 2006? 
Yeah, the uh, the first album I have is the early November's The Mechanic, The Mother, and The Path. Uh, there's a very good chance I messed up that title because those albums don't flow in that order. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, for me, that was, honestly, I want to say it was my album of the year at the time, just for the fact that up until the Wonder Years kind of appeared, the early November was hands down my favorite band ever. Hmm. Um. I worshipped everything Ascenders put out. Uh, the Room is Too Cold is still within my top, I want to say f three, but it's probably more like five or ten albums of all time. Um, but in 2006, they hadn't released anything since The Room is Too Cold. And that was the epitome of emo. That was the epitome of uh, indie rock for me. It was everything I'd ever wanted in music. And I listened to it nonstop for three years waiting for this album to drop. And what it was, was it, it was a triple disc album where it came out, there are three albums, one's heavy, one's softer, and one's a story, and they all flow together. And I, on the daily, went on the internet, I went on Napster, um, I think we're past the rules of limitation or whatever they are, so I can say that legally, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and just looked for anything new that I could find. I waited by the hour for news on this album to come out, and I bought it the instant Target opened up the next day so I could get the special bonus track that came with it. Nice. Um, and it, it was a hit and miss album. Uh, honestly, it was – the rock songs were very good. The slow songs were very good. None of it matched The Room Is Too Cold for me. But being three discs worth of music, um, waiting three years for a new album, it really felt worth it, even though as a whole it felt a little disjointed at parts. Um, being a fan of the early November, it wasn't quite what I wanted. Instead of being, you know, the epitome – instead of being an emo album, instead of – really having Ascenders blare his soul on a record again, uh, he fell into a pattern where if you look at the track listing, almost every song falls into the same uh, time slot. Like they last almost the exact same amount of time for the most part, just yeah. straight down the line. And he really found a rhythm and it's fine because it's three albums worth of music. But uh, as someone who had such a high bar after the room is too cold, I found it, a little disappointing, but that said, I didn't stop listening to it. Um, it came out in the summertime right around my birthday, and I believe I didn't stop refreshing all three of those albums just in a row until almost Christmas. Wow. And <laughs> so if I remember right, um, well, for one, and you've kind of mentioned it, the big album for the early November, like if you just ask like a random person that has heard the early November, they think the room is too cold. Um, and then maybe they're familiar with the, you know, the albums that come out the past couple of years. But this isn't like, is this, would you say this is an album that's just kind of heralded by the early November fans? Or do you feel like people at large got into this? Because, I mean, anytime you put out like a three disc album, like that's really a lot to take in for the average fan, I think. Um, at the time, I think it did pretty well. Now it's kind of discarded. Like, um, we, I've seen the early November a few times since they reunited in, uh, 2013. You've seen them a few times since then. Yeah. They play hardly anything from all three of these albums. Yeah. Um, almost everything they play live is either the new music they've written since the reunion or from the room is too cold. That's it. Uh, 
so this is an album that it's great for what it is. It doesn't hold up compared to the rest of the rest of their discography, even to the band, it seems. So yeah. it's something that for what it is, it's fantastic, but for what it represents the rest of their discography, it is an entity unto itself. It just it's there, it's fun to listen to. Um, it was worth the wait at the time, but I think modern audiences won't find as much to appreciate in it. Yeah. When you go back to it, do you still listen to it like all in one setting or do you just kind of pick and choose different tracks? I I cherry pick these days. I haven't sat down and listened to it all the way through for probably two years, two or three years. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, it's a, uh, I, that's one that didn't even cross my mind uh, as we were putting all this together, but I, I should have known because I, I know uh, how much you love that band. And uh, it's, I, as a fan of a band, you kind of love those sorts of things, like a three disc album or whatever. Um, but it is always interesting to see how that large of a collection of music stands the test of time and how much it holds up uh, as the years pass. Um, the The first album I'm going to talk about is... It, you know, if you listen to this podcast two years ago and we did 2004, you probably heard me mention something about Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge by My Chemical Romance being my favorite album of all time. And it is until I listen to this other album um, because it's Liar. really... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but even if this album I'm about to mention isn't my favorite of all time at all of the time, um, it is the most important album in my life. Um, and it's Under Oath, Define the Great Line. And... I just wrote a really absurdly long uh, reflective feature on it for the site. So if you want to say everything I have to say, you can go and, and read that behemoth of a uh, collection of words. But Under Oath <laughs> is my favorite band of all time. I consider this to be their greatest album. And if I was going to describe why I'm talking about it now, it completely changed the way I thought about music. Uh, simply because you've got a band... Um, that could have gone, you know, they, they courted a bunch of, or I guess basically let a bunch of major labels court them uh, before turning them down, returning to their, their home at Tooth and Nail. They went to the studio and recorded the complete opposite of what everybody thought they would do, or even what made commercial sense. Uh, their previous album, Only Chasing Safety, had been a huge smash, uh, and the screamo scene had kind of blown the band up. Um, and people expected them, I think, to go even more melodic. But instead, they recorded not only this extremely heavy album but it just broke down the the barriers of the genre it, it wasn't a screamo album it wasn't really metalcore you didn't really know what to call it they there was so much experimentation there's like no choruses on the album it's just like a, a fluid motion of, of music um and at the time i had just never experienced anything like that they had a you know like a five minute instrumental track that's just beautiful um, Aaron Gillespie, the drummer and the clean vocalist, uh, his vocals had been cut way back. This is Spencer Chamberlain's album. He, uh, and, and he goes from just, you know, kind of a monotone scream on the only chasing safety to hear he's yelling and shouting and crying out. It's, it's an album that not only is it sonically challenging, but it's lyrically challenging in a sense that I uh, was essentially, uh, in my mind, created, uh, by Spencer to showcase the struggle of uh, for him of dealing with drugs, but the way that it's presented, it's a struggle that almost anyone could have, um, and most of us do have in terms of ourself and the way that we view ourselves and the way that we can't seem to shake off 
all of the terrible things about us that we hate and we're just kind of trapped by them. Um, and so for me, to find the great line, there's so many different moving parts. Uh, you've got just this complete departure to a sound that hadn't been done before and that everybody immediately tried to jump on and start uh, copying. And then from a content standpoint, you go from a, a genre that generally kind of wades around in banal subject matter to being this really, really heavy, important existential crisis um, that almost everybody can relate to in some way or another. Um, and, you know, I think as people look back, uh, this album is just such a landmark album uh, for the post-hardcore genre. But, you know, you think about everything I've just said, how, okay, this doesn't sound commercial. It doesn't sound like a good time. The album still debuted at number two on the Billboard charts when it released. Uh, sold almost 100,000 units in a week, which is almost unheard of now um, for a number of different reasons. But the, the point remains that Under Oath debuted at number two, um, which is pretty startling when you think about the names that you're normally seeing on the billboard charts. So um, it was hugely successful for the band. It obviously allowed the band to continue on and continue to experiment and continue to, to push boundaries as their career went on. Um, but yeah, and I know that you just recently have kind of been introduced to this album. You went with me to see uh, their reunion show in Chicago recently. And I know that you kind of dug in to define the great line a little bit uh, after that. Yeah, uh, Under Earth has always been one of those bands that they've always been on my radar, but just for whatever reason, I just never delved into. And then um, seeing them live for the first time and that being my first real experience with them, they're almost an entity unto themselves that it's hard to really express uh, what comes along with that. It's just the performance, seeing it live, and hearing the song, a lot of those songs for the first time live is just utterly amazing. Yeah. And this is, uh, and obviously you got to see it. this kind of ushered in a new uh, era for the band in terms of their live performance. Because, you know, when you have that much success, you have a, a little bit more to work with uh, when in touring. And they kind of turned their live performance into an experience where they would shoot like these videos to go along with all the songs. And so there's a screen playing this really weird imagery while you're uh, watching the performance. And they do a lot of really quirky, weird stuff, but it makes sense. This is an album for me that I absolutely have to listen to this from front to back. It's really hard to cherry pick from Define the Great Line. I feel like it's it's one body of work and you really need to listen to it from start to finish. But um, yeah, if you want to read more, if I haven't talked to you off about it already, you can check out the article and it's all dead. But uh, <laughs> That that's my uh, that's my start starting point for two thousand six. Nice. <clears throat> Excuse me if I don't vomit all over the floor first for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd say next up is my number two favorite album of the year is Saves the Day, Sound the Alarm. Um, Saves the Day is in the top three of my all time favorite bands ever. Uh, they're one of those bands that they grew out of, uh, you know, almost playing covers of Lifetime songs with just how raw and just punky their music was. And then they grew into themselves. And the weird thing is, at this point in time, they're considered a staple to the pop punk scene. Like, there's nothing else that can come up even similar. But uh, prior to Sound the Alarm, and even now, half their fan base still sees them as 
uh, the first three albums, which is, you know, Through Being Cool and Stay What You Are. Mm-hmm. And they don't even really listen to the modern albums. And Sound the Alarm came out 10 years ago before the band was even uh, 10 years old. And it established the modern sound of Saves the Day. At this point, Sound the Alarm is the true original sound of Saves the Day, uh, just for how long they've been around. It Chris Conley perfected the pop song. He made it harsh. The guitars are rabid. And, um, you know, after In Reverie, I got into the band right before In Reverie came out. And as someone who was still fairly new to music, as someone who had just found this band to love, In Reverie was a shock to the system. It was unlike anything else in Saves the Day's history to this point. And Chris Conley's vocals jumped up about 17 points. Uh, I don't know why his voice got so high, but it didn't. And it, it's just so off-putting of an album that uh, all this time after, I can appreciate it. But at the time, it just it felt like a brick wall in the middle of anything they were trying to do career-wise. Mm-hmm. And Sound the Alarm smashed that wall down in every possible way. Uh, they doubled down on how dark the lyricism was. They doubled down on how harsh the guitars were. Every criticism that In Reverie had on how just quiet and dreamlike it could have been, they kicked in the teeth of anyone who would criticize the album at all. Basically, Sound the Alarm is a response basically saying fuck you to anybody who didn't like In Reverie, and I love it for that. Uh, And it really established them as a band more than anything else in their career. Like, um it still carries to this day and the thematics of it is what Saves Day still is. And apparently they really enjoy the album because it's the beginning of a trilogy that no one knew was a trilogy until the second album uh, Under the Boards was already just about ready to come out. Um, Sound the Alarm has some of the best Saves Day songs on it. And whenever I see them in concert, music from this album is still played like a majority of the time, I said that sentence terribly. <laughs> but Sound the Alarm is one of those just forgotten staples of their discography that I don't think gets enough credit for what it is. And what it is, is it's a new beginning, and it's a new foothold for a band that seems like they've been struggling all along. And when you listen to it, you really realize that maybe they haven't been struggling that much. Yeah. I, you know, as somebody who's not a, uh, you know, I enjoy Saves the Day just like a, as a casual listener, um, but I'm not like a huge Saves the Day fan. So as someone like me, this is the album I think about when I think about Saves the Day, um, which I, I'm not sure if that's the norm, because I think probably most people think about Through Being Cool or, or something. But uh, I don't know. I just remember this album being everywhere, had that like really orange cover mm-hmm. and like every everywhere you went uh, in 2006, I feel like I saw this album. Um, yeah, and it, and it was really kind of a huge, this was a big breakthrough year mainstream, you know, where like suddenly you go to stores and mm-hmm. there are bands you listen to, like the CDs are there, you know what I mean? And saves the day. This album yeah. is one of those that I think about with that for whatever reason. Yeah. And not only that, but Chris Collins vocals where they sound so just alien on in reverie, they fit in perfectly for this album. And, uh, it was Saves Day was the first concert I ever went to, and it was right before this album came out, like a probably six months before this. And even then, he was rocking the bright pink hair and just standing on stage, 
just ravaging a guitar. And it was just, it blew my mind how good it was. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. You know, so, yeah. some, it, it, oh, go ahead. Second coming of the band. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's just, it's one of those things. It's a second coming of a band, which is something that you don't see at all in music. And it's with minor exceptions like Green Day with American Idiot. It's just, it's one of those things where a band comes back with an album that maybe it didn't sell as well as something like Green Day, which is to be expected, but just the impact it had on the career of the band going forward is just so monumental. It It's unfathomable. Yeah. And speaking of second comings, uh, my <laughs> second album I'm going to talk about fits right into that. It is the self-titled album from Seosin. And... In this, we're talking about a band that had kind of blown up underground with a five-song EP that they put out in 2003 called Translating the Name with a guy named Anthony Green as the lead singer. Uh, the band skyrockets to kind of scene fame. And just as the band is about to get signed to a major label and record their first full-length album, Anthony Green leaves the band. So they hold an audition for a lead singer. And this guy named Cove Reber, who was a uh, senior in high school at the time, uh, his favorite band was Seosin, uh, decides to send a demo of him singing a couple of their songs. And they receive it, and they assume that it's Anthony playing a trick on them because the vocals sound so close. Anyway, they bring Cove in, uh, and the rest is history. Cove Reber became the lead singer of Seosin for their next two albums, uh, which is kind of a fairy tale. You think about, like, imagine sending in a demo of you singing songs of your favorite band and then they pick you to be the the new lead singer um one that's awesome two that is a shit ton of pressure <laughs> for a band that is signed to a major <laughs> label uh and already has a, a pretty substantial fan base but the incredible thing about this album is that it's 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 nothing like translating the name but it's still very much the heart of seosin it's heavy music um it's it's beautifully produced by Howard Benson. And some people may disagree. I really like a lot of the things that Howard Benson has done. I know that he puts a, a polish on things that uh, some people aren't crazy about, but the work he did on sales and self-taught album is amazing. And the way that he was able to work with Cove and the performance he brought out of Cove, this is my favorite vocal album of all time. Cove Reaper absolutely brings the house down. Now, granted, as time went on, his live performance uh, went in the tank, but at the time, this was just stunning to think that this guy could step into Anthony Green's shoes and do what he was able to. Um, the album is beautiful. Um, it's if, if Define the Great Line is my favorite album and Three Cheers for Revenge is my second favorite album, Sales and Self-Titled is my third favorite album. I listen to it. Uh, the, the spring and summer is my favorite time to put it on. I just love to put it on, roll the windows down and drive. Um, and it's so fun to sing along to just because it's so positive and so full of hope uh on this album cove really kind of dug deep um it's a lot it's very lyrically ambiguous but it's also uh you can feel the hope there um and, and it's really a blast to listen to and there's so many great songs and you know even we, I, I talk about what a, a great performance cove had Alex Rodriguez, the drummer, is absolutely insane. There are moments on this album that I just don't understand how a man with two arms could be, be playing what he's playing <laughs> on the drums. It's it's just mind-blowing. Uh, and then you've got, obviously, uh, Bo Burchill and uh, Justin Chikoski tearing up the guitars. It's just a, it's an all-around kind of 
pinnacle album for the post-hardcore genre and kind of, again, like to find the great line, ignited a, a whole stream of uh, lookalikes um, because this this theme of having a, a band with really heavy music and a singer with a really high voice doing these kind of stratospheric notes became a whole thing. And there were just a ton of bands doing that after this. Um, Seosin would never be quite as good for me as they were on this album after, um, but they're still one of my favorite bands of all time. And I, I absolutely love this album. Yeah. They're, uh, they're another band that I never really got into until recently. Um, actually the first time I there, I've had their self-titled album for years, but the first time I really sat down with it and listened to it was, I think a week before, uh, Anthony Green and Sayosin reunited at Riot Fest oh, wow. uh, a year ago, two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. Yeah, so they're, for being a band that has such an impact and have been around for so long, they're still new to me, which is, uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing I think about, we talking about the uh, the actual physical albums, the the cover with the Beatle on it kind of became legendary another album you saw everywhere and that kind of became their logo from that point and i i was thinking as we were talking this to me is the last year where i remember going to the record store day of the release and buying like the cd um i i still did that some after this but i for me i really started transitioning digitally around 2007 because i like you with some of the ones you mentioned under oath to find the great line i was there when the store opened that morning to buy it i remember going out to buy seos and uh, i remember seeing the albums everywhere but i feel like this was the last year for me like going to the store and actually buying physical albums uh, which is kind of interesting i guess but um okay that's seos uh why don't you take it away with your next album uh my last album for this is I think hands down the biggest breakout of the year, which is My Chemical Romance is the Black Parade. Um, when this initially came out, My Chemical Romance was already a big household name in uh, music. Three Cheers for Sweet Revenge was a massive album, and it was pure punk, uh, if nothing else. And following that up was a huge task that I think most bands can't quite manage or if they do they're just going to rehash their own ideas instead the black parade is something that even to this day is considered one of the best albums in all of uh pop punk if not mm -hmm. just rock in general yeah um no one saw it coming uh in fact i believe it was premiered in england during a live show uh michael mcromance is supposed to take the stage and the announcer came on and said like michael my Kim is not going to be able to make it. Instead, please welcome the Black Parade. And the audience almost started a riot. And then midway through, like, song two, they realized it was My Chemical Romance and big of an impact this band had and just what they set out to do. The Black Parade is a concept album uh, that you don't really realize until after you've already listened to it. And yeah. the entire thing is a process of death coming for you in various ways and your acceptance of it and just the beginning sound of the heartbeat monitor and the soft uh jangle of um you know the opening track as gerard just kind of works his way into the song before it just breaks out into the song dead uh yep. 
you you already know it's a marching band style album just from the sound of it. If not seeing the music videos as well and the costumes they had, each and every song on this album, every single one is a single waiting to happen. And they took full advantage of that. You know, it's just they, instead of rehashing anything they could have done, they set out and completely and utterly dominated anything anyone expected of a follow-up album that they could have possibly put out. Yeah, it's. I, uh, is, is it it's safe just, to say that this is like the biggest album to come out of this scene? I mean, it's in the discussion, yes. right? Oh yeah, definitely. If there's anything else that can even be discussed with it, I'm willing to listen to it, but I have some serious hesitation. The only other thing I can think of is Panic at the Disco is a Fever to Sweat Out, and even then, yeah. not really. Yeah, it's, but just it's the, up there. But... The, yeah, the scope of this album, just how it reads like a fairy tale if you read the lyrics. It's whimsical, it's funny, it's fun, but the guitars are so goddamn harsh. The lyrics are so depressing. Um, you know, the even Cancer, the first time I listened to that, where it's just a piano ballad, talking about just withering away with cancer. It made me cry the first time I listened to it. And then, even then, at its darkest depths, when it starts coming back with famous last words, and it's just an, it's an arena-ready just rock song. There's so much power and so much energy that the concept of it, as someone who's already dead, they're already ready to conquer the afterlife almost. It's just everything about this album is utterly perfect. Every single song, every single lyric, and every single guitar riff, it's the only album I can think of from this scene, from pop punk in general, that people are going to be singing these songs 40 years from now. This is the album that put My Chemical Romance on the same level as Queen and Rush. Yeah, it's it's massive. Uh, and if it feels like we're overstating it, I mean, I just don't, I can't remember another band from this scene having like just the global impact that my chemical romance did with this. I mean, they were everywhere. Um, and, and you still hear these songs on the radio. The, the, so my story with it, you know, I mentioned how much I love three cheers for street revenge. I was so ready for another, my chemical romance album. And then this came out and I didn't know how to handle it because I, I think like me, like a lot of people didn't at the time understand what my chemical romance was doing. Like to me, I was just like, what the heck? Like, this is like a rock opera. Like what the hell, what happened to all like the dark kind of emo punk. Uh, it just didn't make sense to me that their hairstyles changed, their outfits changed. It just looked like a completely different band, which is what we like to look at and be like, Oh, they're selling out. What I didn't understand at the time is that this band, what this band was doing and that Gerard had these stories to tell and these characters and this whole, it, it's, it's more than just a band. It's like an, a creative outlet for him to, display these incredible fantastical stories he has and each one calls for a different kind of music a different kind of soundtrack to tell the story um and in hindsight you look back and it's just genius you know i, I listen to the black parade now and i'm still just blown away another album i have to listen to from front to back every time i i can cherry pick but i'd much rather listen to it all the way through yeah same here and same thing at the time it came out i was a little stunned with it i didn't know what to think of it and I remember uh, I went to the store and bought it the day it came out. And I remember my first listen through, I finished it. I just sat there and I'm like, they went from Sweet Revenge to this. And I remember just being disappointed. And then I clicked it a second time to start replaying. And the instant that second play finished, 
I was just dumbfounded at how good this album was. Yeah. And uh, I know it came out in October. It was the only thing to compete with the early November for me for the rest of the year. And even now, the early November, being how deep I was into their music at the time, I don't listen to them nearly as much as I do the Black Parade still to this day. Yeah. What's your favorite song on the Black Parade? That is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's tough. It's kind really of tough. What mood you're in. Yeah, like Dead uh, is always a fun song for me. Um, the Sharpest Lives is yeah. always one that I listen to. Welcome to the Black Parade is a classic. Famous Last Words is a genuine rock opera that I, that's a terrible way to describe it, that I still listen to. Cancer still moves me. Mama mm -hmm. is a fantastic rock song, which actually caused one of my friends, he played it in his car while he was driving his mom. It almost got him kicked out of his house. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Teenagers is still a monumental rock song, just lambasting their fan base. It's just, everything about it is perfect. I do want to say Teenagers is one of my least favorite albums of theirs. I just, uh, I don't know why. It's not, you know, it's like, it's not a bad song. I just, I, it doesn't fit to me uh, in the context of the album. It's the only one that kind of sticks out. But I, yeah, I'm the, I'm with you. I think if I had to pick one, probably The Sharpest Lives. Um, and that one probably sounds the most like Three Cheers. But um, but yeah, it's just, that album's just loaded. And I, I still can't believe, I mean, everybody was wearing a My Chemical Romance t-shirt. Like it, they yeah. went from like playing clubs to arenas just overnight. Like it was unbelievable. And I, I think they unfairly got categorized as, you know, crappy, lame emo band because yeah. of how huge uh, their fan base exploded. But, um, you know, whatever i'm sure they'll take it because that uh that definitely put them on another level um yeah so for my next album i am going to you know i just shared two of my three favorite albums of all time this one is obviously uh not in that category but it's still a really great album uh i want to talk about taking back sundays louder now um and for me i two years ago i said that uh where you want to be was my favorite taking back Sunday album. And I think it still is, but in the summertime, there's just almost, gosh, there's louder. Now is just so great. Um, it's a, uh, just like a lot of other bands we talked about, uh, louder now kind of transition, taking back Sunday from like huge scene band to like mainstream band on the radio that your mom would know a song or two. Um, make damn sure just was a huge, huge single for them to this day. I think it's still probably their biggest single. Um, but Louder Now is a departure from kind of the angsty emo rock to more of just kind of a straightforward alt-rock album, but they do it really well. Um, I love Fred Mascherino's backup vocals on this album and what he brings to the table. Um, Adam has a lot of really great vocal performances on this album, and he's, the really biting, cutting lyrics are really great on like Make Damn Sure and Spin. Uh, but there's a lot of just really fun songs like Miami uh, and 2020 Surgery aren't songs that I would have expected Taking Back Sunday to write in 2006, but they were there. They were a blast to listen to, super poppy, super catchy. Um, but there's just so many songs in this album that just stick with you. Like you hear the opening notes of the first song, What's It Feel Like to Be a Ghost? And you're immediately just kind of like roped in of like, okay, I'm in. I am along for this ride wherever you want to take me. Um, and it, And when I see them live now, I'm still louder now those songs when they play them live sound more real and authentic to me than some of the the 
older stuff, I think. Um, so while it's not my taking my favorite Taking Back Sunday album, it is still just a fantastic rock album. And again, another album that extended uh, the band forward in a way that they kind of kept going. I mean, they're still obviously uh, a, a really huge band, and a lot of that is due to the success they had with Louder Now. Yeah, Louder Now is honestly my favorite Taking Back Sunday album. I think it's their most consistent outside of uh, Tell All Your Friends. And it's just, it's one of those albums that it really pushed them into new ground. And whereas a lot of their other albums, I tend to cherry pick songs. Mm -hmm. Louder Now and Tell All Your Friends are the two that I listen to front to back constantly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I agree. I think pound for pound, uh, Louder Now, just in terms of quality, from song to song is really up there. It's, it might be their best work in that sense. Um, but it's, yeah. it's still just so fun to listen to and, and sing along with. Um, yeah, it's great. It's got some heavy songs, poppy songs. It's just kind of the all around package. Um, so those are kind of the albums we wanted to do a deep dive on, but we also have some other kind of honorable mention albums because there's a lot of stuff uh, that came out in 2006, even while we've been talking, I've remembered <laughs> a few more, um, but give us a couple other albums from 2006 uh, quickly that just kind of stand out to you, albums that you still go back to when you have the chance? Um, first off, I want to give an honorable mention to Real Big Fish's Our Live Album is Better Than Your Live Album. <laughs> it came out 10 years ago. It's still, hands down, the best live album ever recorded. Uh, I went to see Real Big Fish live probably 10 years ago uh, before this came out. And I'd never listened to them before. I just went on a whim with some friends. It was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And a lot of times when you hear a live album, it's you enjoy the songs, you enjoy the cheering, and you're like, yay, they're doing it live. But it, that's all there is. Real Big Fish's live album is hands down the epitome of their live shows. It's amazing. Everything from the jokes and the witty banter they have back and forth between songs to just you can tell they play live because sometimes you hear something that it doesn't sound like the album. And just to the fact that they extend a song that should be a three-minute single to seven minutes out of nowhere, and they mm -hmm. just play and riff and talk for the audience during it. It's amazing. Listen to it today or kill yourself. I don't care. You um, know it must be good because this is coming from a Blink-182 fan, so. It is fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of my honorable mentions is going to be AFI's December Underground. Uh, December Underground is the album that got me into AFI. A Miss Murder was hands down my song of the summer, I want to say. It was before yeah. I even listened to AFI. Everyone knew Miss Murder. Um, the reason it didn't make it to the top three for me was this was a transitional period for the band where Sing the Sorrow is an amazing hardcore record and Crash Love following it three years later is my favorite AFI album. It's the epitome of what they should be and what they can be and the experiment of them. But December Underground was that weird time period between where they didn't quite know if they wanted to be hardcore, they didn't know if they wanted to be pop. Um, each song on it is amazing. Davey Havoc and Jade Puget uh, kill it songwriting-wise. But it's just, there's a weird mixture of music and genre that it works for the album, but as a whole for the discography, it just kind of fits in. It doesn't quite know its place yet. Hmm. Uh, that might It might prove itself later on down the line but for right even now 10 years later it still feels it i don't know where that came from i love the album but it's just it's a weird mixture okay um yeah the other one i wanted to mention 
was uh, Newfound Glory's Coming Home. And as a lifelong Newfound Glory fan, uh, they were the first band, other than Blink-22, I ever got into um, hardcore. I've listened to them nonstop for 20 years now, and I will forever. Uh, Coming Home came out in 2006. It was one of my most anticipated releases. That album is a piece of shit, even by today's standards. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. Oh, snap. It's just, it's, they really experimented. They tried to do something new. They softened their sound a little bit. They went from singing songs about breakups and girls to just being happy and being married. And that's, it's great, but <laughs> it's just, it's not what the band should be. And it just, even 10 years later, I've tried to listen to this album front to back nonstop for 10 years, and I'm still just eh, midway through. <laughs> There's a few good singles, but otherwise it's just, it's not good. Uh, everything they've put out since then has been astounding. It's just, they, for the body of work they have and the incredible amount of songs and quality they've put out, they needed one album that just blew the bucket, and this one did it. That's a phrase I just made up right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to talk quickly about Plus 44? Yes. Uh, Plus 44 was actually, weirdly enough for me, I didn't follow music a lot back in the day. It was more something that I listened to, I loved, I didn't read the news for it. I picked up Plus 44 on a whim at a Best Buy, and listen to it. I'm like, this really sounds like Blink-182. And then I Googled them that night and realized uh, <laughs> that is what Mark Hoppus and Travis Barker did after Blink-182 disbanded. And That's I was like, amazing. oh, no wonder that happened. Uh, Plus 44, when it came out, it had about three songs that I fucking loved, and the rest of them I was kind of iffy on. Yeah. In the 10 years since then, I love this album more than some of Blink-182 songs. It's just hmm. everything... For you can tell the self-titled Blink-22 album is good, but Plus 44 is Travis and Mark coming together, and they're putting out something they love. My cat just shook her head. You might hear that bell. <laughs> they put out something that they loved, that they were passionate about, and it was a fight back against everything that the self-titled Blink album was. It's just the energy they have for it, and even the song Fighting... Uh, I forget what it's called at the moment. I have to look because I miss spats. Uh, <laughs> no, it isn't. Where it was a song oh, where they're yeah. just lambasting Tom. It's yeah. just everything about it is heartfelt. And I feel like it's the first time since Take Off Your Pants and Jacket that they were all in. Um, I love the self-titled Blink-22 album, but Plus 44, I feel, blows out of the water in every aspect. Yeah, I like the Plus 44 album, and I'll still go back to it from time to time. At the at the time it came out with that and Angels and Airwaves, it, it was hard. I don't know. It just felt like yeah. people were – they were showing off their new girlfriends, and it was uncomfortable. And it was just like – there was just something about it where I wanted to be more into it than I was. Um, but it was like you had to pick a side almost. <laughs> and uh, And obviously you didn't. You can like whatever music you want. But just because of the history there, it was just – it was a weird time, it feels like. Um, but I, I do think that plus 44 probably wasn't appreciated as much as it should have been. Um, no, um, sorry. I didn't mean to, the, I'll tell you what it was, was at the time Blink-22 self-titled album came out 
and it sounded so different from their earlier material that it felt like the band was moving in a new direction. And then when they broke up, Angels and Airwaves came out, which expanded on that with Tom, and it felt like something completely brand new that we hadn't really heard before from them. And Angels and Airwaves exploded. Uh, Boxcar Racer exploded, because that was an experiment, too. And Mark and Tom were left to their own devices, and when they came out with Plus 44, it sounded like they were just double-dipping the ink, like they were just going back into what they knew. And it sounded like something we'd heard before. And I don't think they got the credit they deserved until years after this album came out. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, before I do my honorable mentions, I want to say that I was surprised that December Underground was higher on your list. But now that you explain it, I can see why I know you're a big AFI fan. Another album I feel like everybody was listening to, saw the album everywhere I went. That was one where like I had friends who weren't even into this kind of music. And then it's like, oh, you're listening to AFI? Like it was just a, right? <laughs> it was, it was such a huge album and so many people were listening to it that I wouldn't have expected. Um, but yeah, another big one. Um, a couple honorable mentions for me. This It's so tough. There's, uh. I've thought of more since we've been doing this. But just touch on a few. Uh, brand new, The Devil and God Are Raging Inside Me. My favorite brand new album. My favorite cover art of all time. Uh, another huge departure from uh, their previous album, Dejan Tondu. Uh, the Devil and God is such a... It's kind of their define the great line. It's a it's a very deep, uh, heavy, brooding album. Um, but it's really beautifully done. It's another album I go back to and I feel like if it came out today, I would I would love it just as much as I did then. Um, Boys Like Girls self-titled album I was absolutely in love with when it came out and I still love to put it on in the summertime and play it just because it is it's manufactured pop punk but it is so damn much fun um, there's so many fun songs on that album to sing along to and I discovered that band yeah um, I wasn't the one that discovered the band but I discovered them for <laughs> myself on pure volume they had like a pure volume page like before the album came out or anything that had like three songs on it and uh, I don't know, I don't even remember how I found it. I just like stumbled upon it. I was like, oh my gosh, these guys are incredible. And then the album came out and I was just absolutely in love with it. I, I still, it's a classic pop punk album to me, even though they ditched that sound and went in a, a bunch of different directions. That, that's still my favorite album of theirs. Um, Can I actually uh, tell you a story about that album real fast? Please. I discovered the band the exact same way you did. I somehow, I don't remember how, stumbled on their pure volume page and fell in love with the three songs they had up. Yeah. And a week later, they were playing a show in the basement of a church at my college. And I drug all my friends to it, claiming they loved the band. We went there. We saw them play the show. Um, they were fantastic. But they just seemed like a bunch of just teenage guys playing music. A month later, they blew up out of nowhere and just yeah. took over everything on the charts. Yeah, they were huge, and they were they were made for a major label. Uh, they were kind of a band made to strike when the iron was hot, um, and it and it worked. But yeah, now that you're mentioning that, I wonder if everybody maybe like their label like logged into everybody's computer and opened a browser and went to that pure volume page, and we all just <laughs> sat down and we're like, oh yeah, <laughs> like it's weird because I. Why else would we have the same story? But anyway, I remember one of the three songs was an acoustic version of Thunder, which became a full band yes. song on the album. And it was so damn good. Uh, anyway, crazy. <laughs> um, I also want to mention Gym Class Heroes, as, uh, as cool as school children. Um, again, if you read the site, you know uh, I love hip hop. Grew up as kind of my favorite genre. This was an album that kind of 
was one of several albums that kind of got me back into hip hop in terms of just the, I love the live instrumentation. It's such a fun album and it felt it wasn't even though songs hit the radio, it wasn't what mainstream hip hop was doing at the time. So it was kind of fascinating to watch this band uh, that played, you know, all live music uh, in a hip hop setting kind of blow up like they did. And obviously being on Fueled by Rom and it was part of that whole craze, like everybody was blowing up and they had a couple songs with Patrick Stump. But uh, that album's still a lot of fun. I, I still like to go back to it. It's my favorite Gym Class Heroes album. Um, and the one that I'm not going to... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, can I tell you a story about that album as well? Please. So in 2006 to maybe early 2007, most likely 2006, Gym Class Heroes came to my college as well. And they played a free show in the middle of a bunch of dormitories that I went to. And I heard them play. I watched them live. It could have been within months of this coming out, either before or prior. I don't remember. But I remember just hating them. I didn't enjoy the live show. I listened <laughs> to the music, and I was just like, eh. And I held that grudge for 10 goddamn years. I just put this album on for the first time. Uh... I had it just in my music bank. I put it on for the first time probably four months ago and loved every second of it all the <laughs> way through. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, it is I'm such kind a fun a album. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, the, their next album, well, their next two albums weren't very good, but this one was kind of the, the pinnacle for me. That's that's really hilarious, but I'm glad you at least got into it. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have time to talk about a whole lot more. Dashboard Conventional, Dusk and Summer came out in 2006. Um, it had some good moments. You mentioned before we started, right before we started, that Copeland's Eat, Sleep, Repeat came out in 2006. I thought it was 2007, but lo and behold, 2006, another one of my favorite albums, uh, my favorite album by Copeland. Um, I'll probably be doing a write-up on that one. But before we finish today, I'm going to say I'm going to say an album. This is an album that I, I listen to probably once a year for nostalgia's sake. I'm not really into it, but when I think about 2006, for some reason, this is the album that pops into my head. And I'm going to say it and see what your reaction is. Uh, cute is what we aim for. Same old blood rush with a new touch. I, when that album came out, I listened to it nonstop for a long time. Okay. I listened to it nonstop until their follow-up came out. Uh, I don't quite remember what it's called. Rotation, I think. It was Rotation. Uh, I listened to it a lot in between those two albums. Once Rotation came out, I listened to Rotation for a few years. I haven't thought about Cute Is What We Aim For for probably <laughs> two years or so. Yeah. Um, I know when they came out, I loved them. I absolutely loved everything they did. But And they were a band that were on the cusp of just absolute glory, and they yep. self-imploded so badly that just the stories I heard about just how much of a dick everybody in the band was. Yeah. I was like, ah. it really turned me off from everything they put out before that I loved. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause they were on fuel by Rama, just like gym class heroes, fallout boy, uh, Paramore. Academy is yeah. Paramore, like all these bands are blowing up and they seemed primed. Uh, the reason I, I, the reason I think I associate it, I worked at a radio station at the time and in exchange for, uh, advertising on the station the local uh, i think it was cox communications uh, local cable network or cable provider uh provided cable for all of the people that worked at the radio station and so i had 
for a year, like access to every station. And so I would just put, I would get home and turn on fuse basically and just let it go, which back in the day was kind of like the MTV for this scene. And that video for, uh, what was the, what was the big song off that album? Um, it's, God, it's completely. I'm, I'm losing <laughs> it right now. But anyway, there was a finger twist and a split. No, that's not it. Um, <laughs> hold on with us, everybody. I'm going to look this up because uh, it's going to drive me crazy if I can't find it. For me, I remember finger twist and split, uh, which is so sexual. I love it that uh, it was the song I heard before this album came out. And that's why I remember it so much, but I know it probably wasn't the one everybody else The Curse of Curves. Uh, the Curse of Curves is what I'm remembering. And there was a music video for that song. And it they played it like every other video on Fuse for like a couple months straight. It just felt like every other damn video was this video with Shant with his hair pulled like from one side of his face completely over to the other side of his face. <laughs> he looked ridiculous, uh, but I just, I don't know why, but I always think of that. Um, and, you know, once a year I'll throw the album on and, and remember the, the good days. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's it. That's all I've got. Uh, Kyle, thanks for sharing with us today. It's always fun to uh, get nostalgic and talk about some of our favorite albums from years gone by. So thank you for that. Yes. And we are pretty cool. Yeah, we are. And if you made it, this far <laughs> listener uh you're gonna want to listen to some more so uh go to itunes subscribe to the it's all dead podcast uh we are putting these out as regular as we can and of course go to it's all check out our content and tell us how much you love us you can also follow us on twitter like us on facebook uh that's gonna do it for the podcast today for kyle schultz i'm kyle hawk and we'll catch you next time thanks for listening to the official it's all dead podcast you can download our podcast at iTunes and find exclusive music news and content at www.itsalldead.com. <laughs>